You know that song we just sang? You realize that that's the Apostles' Creed, right? I don't know if you know that or not. But um, you want to know something really cool? You ever heard people like skeptics or whatever say about Jesus? Like, oh, he was just a regular man. And then several hundred years after Jesus lived, people, you know, like a whole Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown kind of stuff. You know, they made up a bunch of things about Jesus. And they really, the original people, they didn't believe that he was divine or that he was the Christ. That that all got added several hundred years later. Do you, you want to know the truth of the matter is that the historical record shows that within 50 years of the life of Jesus, those truths were already cauterized in doxological statements like you just sung. Which means that the people that actually lived in the lifetime of Jesus and knew who he was and met him and were there, they were alive and well when the church put these statements together. And so had he not risen from the dead, had he not been virgin born, had he not been the son of the living God, they would have known. And they would have said something about it. But they didn't. And furthermore, they affirmed it. And from the apostles, Christianity turned the world upside down in the last 2,000 years. Now you can argue a lot if you want to, but I would just say, be open-minded when you research and think about Christ and look at the historical evidence. There is more historical evidence for the unity and the authenticity of the Bible than there is for Homer's Odyssey, nor any other work of antiquity. Now you don't have to take this man's word for it. Go research yourself. But I would just say, if you want to be an honest person, you want to think through these issues and say, okay, is it my heart issue that keeps me from believing in Jesus? Or is there really an intellectual issue that I want to deal with? And be honest in your own soul and look for those kinds of answers. And I want to say to all believers here today, you have a lot to stand on. Notice I didn't say to be proud about. Because we want to walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and be humble and be kind and be gracious. In fact, the Bible says that we are to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, but we are to do so with gentleness, gentleness and kindness. I want to encourage you and maybe make a recommendation uh, for a book if you're looking on apologetics. Uh, Dallas Willard, who was the chair of the philosophy department for USC for about 25 years, wrote a book called The Allure of Gentleness. And that's a great place to start if you want to do apologetic work, but you want to do it in a gracious and a kind way. I want to make that recommendation to you. Now, that sermon didn't cost you a nickel. Let's turn over to the book of Revelation. And uh, I'm going to say everything that can possibly be said about Revelation 7 in the next 20 minutes. Okay, you don't believe that, and I'm glad you don't. Doesn't it feel like it's been months since we've met because last Sunday we had iced out with all the stuff? Let me remind you of where we were a couple of Sundays ago. We ended uh, the chapter 6, and we, if you look up there, uh, verse 12 down through verse 17, I mean, it is a symbolic language of an apocalyptic kind of language saying this is the end of the world that's coming. 
Right? That at the end of days before Christ comes back, that the world is shaking in their boots, so to speak. That there will come a day that when Christ comes again, He will set all things right. He will, he will uh, damn and He will judge all of the injustice of the world and He will exalt all that is righteousness in Christ. But there are some quaking days that are coming toward us in the future. And so right on the heels of all that, you notice that at the end of chapter 6, verse number 17, it says, For the great day of their wrath, has come and who can stand and if you're reading the end of chapter 6 I mean you're just seeing this climactic epic of destruction and you expect that chapter number 7 is just going to like keep on going maybe you're saying man the judgment is coming I mean I'm about to read all of this but the funny thing is is that chapter number 7 is an interlude You'll pick back up in chapter number 8 and we'll talk about the trumpet judgments. In fact, those of you that are reading along in Revelation with us, next Sunday I'm going to go ahead and cover chapters 8 through 11. So you can do your reading this week. And we'll try and get all of that at one section. But you're expecting this thing just to keep on going. But in the middle of all of that, pick up with me. I'm just going to uh, break this into three sections and make a few points for you. So verses 1 through 8 is one section. And maybe you might want to just title that The Sealed. The Sealed. Look at that and you'll see where I get that. It's not me. It's right here in the text. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any of the trees. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom were it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, now you would be expecting him to say, go out and dump more Heartache and pain and judgment upon the world. But no, that's not what it says. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And then look at uh, verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then look at verse number 5. I'm not going to read all of these, just want to show you something. You see in verse 5 where it says, From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And then go to the end of verse number 8. Some of your translations may have this, some of them may not. It's just simply for reading purposes. But you'll notice at the end of verse number 8 it says, And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So at the beginning of verse number 5 and at the end of verse number 8, there is this inclusio or this bookend that says that these 12,000 were sealed and these 12,000 were sealed. What it's saying here is it's not necessarily talking about some sort of uh, literally translated ethnic group of Israel. It's just saying that the believers of all time that are on the earth before Christ comes back, that the totality and the completeness of their sealing before the Lord. And you'll notice that word rephrased here several times. So uh, the first question that comes up, and listen, if you're joining us today and this is your first time in here, I realize that the book of Revelation is a hard one just to come into church on and to get, and get a hold of everything. So uh, just kind of mind with me for a few minutes while I deal with the details for some of our people. And then I'm going to try and lift out of here some applications that I believe everybody in this room, both lost and saved, will be able to apply to our own lives today. So let me. Uh, the first thing that comes up in this passage is always, who are the 144,000? Now come on, some of y'all admit it. Raise your hand if you wanted to know who the 144,000 were. Okay, I've got like three. Okay, there we go. I got some more up here. 
Everybody wants to know who's this 144,000. So many of you have read uh, a bunch of Tim LaHaye books and that sort of thing. And, and uh, you're saying, okay, this 144,000, these are all Jewish people. And this takes place somewhere in the uh, seven years of tribulation yonder out in the future. What I'm going to tell you is that I don't believe that, that that to be the case. I believe what's going on here is that the language is symbolic, Right? And that this 144,000 simply is just symbolic language for saying the total amount of believers between the time of the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the second coming. You say, Steve, how could it possibly not just be an ethnic Jewish Israel? Well, let me just see if I... It would be okay if I just maybe give you four or five quick reasons of why not to look at that as Jews, but rather to see that as those who are blood-washed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing is I would say is if you look back at verse number 3, which drives the entire context of chapter number 7, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed... What's it say there? The bondservants, right? The bondservants of our God on their forehead. Well, the bondservants, that very same phrase is used all the way through the book of Revelation in every other context in the book of Revelation as the total amount of believers. For instance, chapter 1 and verse number 1, chapter 2, verse number 20, chapter 6, verse number 11, chapter 10, verse number 7, chapter 11, verse number 18, chapter 19, verse 2, and verse number 5. Every time it says the bondservants of the Lord... It's not speaking about ethnic Israel. It's speaking about the totality and the completeness of all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And secondly, I would say that the seal connects these believers here with all of the rest of the believers everywhere else. In fact, the other places in the book of Revelation, you'll find that all believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit. For instance, chapter 3, verse number 12, chapter 22 and verse number 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 22, and Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 13. This seal is not for some ethnic group called Israel. This seal is the seal of the Spirit of God upon every believer that lives and dies until Jesus comes again. Uh, furthermore, I would say that, uh, number three, that to see this as ethnic Israel, these 144,000, doesn't really fit into the model of seeing the 12 tribes. For instance, did you notice that these 12 tribes are the out of order than all of the ways that they're represented in the Old Testament? What tribe always comes first in the Old Testament? What's the first tribe? Does anybody know? I'll give you a candy bar if you do. Who's the, fir- who's the first son? Reuben. Whoever said that, you get a candy bar. Reuben. Who's the first tribe that's represented here? Somebody tell me. Judah. Do you know what tribe is missing from this list too? Dan. It's broken up into two tribes here. This has nothing to do with ethnic Israel. Why would you read everything that we've read so far in this book, understanding that this is a genre of literature that uses symbolisms to talk about the great things coming in the future? Why would you all of a sudden put the brakes on and say, ah, that's a 144,000 Jewish people? It's not 1,443 and 999, believe I mean, you know what I mean? Like, what happens during this time? What if one of them dies? Is there another one that takes the place? Why would you make this language something that it's not? Um, I'll just give you a couple others. Remember this, 
that the entire New Testament emphasizes the Jewishness of all believers. And that would be in chapter 1 and verse 20, chapter 2 and verse 9. And what does the Apostle Paul say? The Apostle Paul says, you're not a Jew by birth, right? You're a Jew by faith. What is he talking about this Jewishness? It's just simply saying that in the Old Testament, the Jew was God's called out elect people. And he used the Jew to bring the gospel to the world. And now all of those that believe in Jesus, in some sense, are the children of Abraham by faith. Another reason would be this. How many times in the New Testament does the authors go to this great extent to tell you that Jesus has broken down a middle wall of partition and there is no more Jew and Gentile and barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in you all. The whole point of the gospel is to bring unity. Why would you all of a sudden look at this passage and think somehow that God has now gone back to looking at ethnic Israel and the church? What about what Jesus said? I have other sheep that are not of this flock, but I bring them in. Why? John 10 through 12, to make one fold of God. The purpose is not to make a dichotomy. The purpose is to bring unity. Well, I hope that helps you uh, just a little bit on understanding who they are. Now, for all the rest of us in here that need something for tomorrow morning at work, let me see if I can just draw out for you maybe a couple of points of application from verses 1 through 8 before we move on. Here's what I would say about this. Number one, God is alive and He is in control of all things. The God of the Bible is alive and He is in control of all things. If you look back at verse number, uh, if you look back at verse number two, there, some of your scriptures might say that uh, having the seal of the living God, whether you see it there or not, it is there. In fact, that's an Old Testament drawing. Whenever the children of Israel would go up against false uh, or go up against nations that had false gods, you know, the idols that they had made with their hands, God would always bolster and encourage. Can you guys hear that ringing, or is it just me? Is that just me? Might be my own eardrums. All right, so um, whenever the children of Israel would go up against a nation that had false gods, God would always come by and encourage the people by saying, I am the living God. And I just want to say to all my brothers and sisters in this room today, we serve a living Savior, and He's in the world today. Amen? God is alive and God is well. Now, you watched the debates the other night, and you might have a little bit of question in your mind, all that fiasco. And the world seems bad, and there are ISIS soldiers that are cutting the heads off of good people and burning people alive in cages. And the world seems rough, and it is rough. But I want you to understand that the Bible teaches that our God is alive and well and that He is in control of all things. Now, lest you sit here and say, does that mean that God is willfully letting and sitting back and allowing ISIS soldiers to do this? Where is God when all the suffering is? Let me remind you that though God created the world perfect and right and good, and He had a plan for all of us, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that He plunged all of humanity into the sin. And the reason why there is evil and suffering and pain is because we have gone wrong. And it takes Christ and the cross and His coming again to set everything to rights, but He will. We serve a living Savior. God is alive and God is in control. And I think you can use that tomorrow in your life. Let me give you a second point. Every believer, not just 144,000 Jewish people, 
Every believer, let me say that again because I know you couldn't hear me because my voice is so soft. Every believer has the seal of God upon their life. The Spirit of the living God is the seal. He is the down payment. He is the engagement ring. He is everything to us. He is the assurity and the hope and the ownership in our heart that we belong to the God of heaven. And what's it say here? Now they're sealed in the forehead. Once again, okay, use the symbolic language here. You're interpreting that right. It's not just talking about that there's going to be a bunch of people walking around with a stamp on their head. What the author is trying to tell you is that the seal of God, the Spirit of God that seals us and purchases our redemption and holds us true to the God of heaven and assures us that we are owned by Him is so visible to Him, it is as if you were walking around with a stamp on your head. Let me see if I can maybe make it applicable for your life. What this means is no believer ever gets lost in the shuffle. No believer left behind. No believer left behind. I'm sure there is a person in this room that feels left out and marginalized and lonely. You might feel that way because of a relationship or a lack thereof. You might feel that way because you feel like the best years have passed you by. You might feel like that because when you go to school and you think that you're living for the Lord and and they snicker and they laugh and you, you begin to try and exert your Christianity upon a lost world and those people and all of a sudden you find yourself marginalized and put to the side. I want to assure you that God sees you just as surely as you're sitting there and you're His child and He loves you. And He'll walk with you and care for you. And there will come a day when He'll receive you to His own. He is the lover of our lives. You are never, ever, ever alone when you're a child of God. Let me make another point here and then I'll just move on for you. Let me skip to this. We are united through the covenant work of Jesus Christ. Look back down. I I just want to encourage you to see the reason why I said a minute ago in verse number 5... You see, these tribes are out of order. It's not listed Reuben and then on down. Why do you think Judah comes first? Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Somebody tell me. Jesus. What do we read about in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5? What did, do, you remember, do you remember what John says in Revelation chapter 5? I heard behind me the voice of a lion and I turned to see what? The Lamb of God. Look back at verse number, uh, verse, number five, um, verse number four. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. Right? And then look at verse number nine. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude. It's the same thing. In chapter number five, he hears the voice of the lion and he turns to see the Lamb of God. In chapter number seven, he hears the voice of these 12 complete tribes and when he turns to see, he sees the multitude of all believers for all time. We are sealed by the covenant work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, He died for your sins, appeasing the wrath of God, atoning for your sin, and making it possible for you to have everlasting life. That's the work that Jesus does to seal us. Let me move quickly today. Um, Verse 9 through 12. 
His salvation extends to all people. Look at verse number 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Do you see that? Okay, so even if, how would you put that together? Even if that 144,000 were Jews, it says from every tribe, those people are wrapped up in this said as well too. It says right there, a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes, that would include Jews as well, and people and tongues. Let me just say this to us as a point of application from verse 9 to verse number 12. His salvation extends to all the peoples of the world. You want to know why we want to try and add 30 to 40 families this year or people? And you know why we want to try and see 10 families with children come to faith in Christ? And do you know why we want to give uh, $25,000 toward missions? We want to do that so that we can do our part both locally and globally to spread the gospel of the good news that Jesus saves and gives eternal life so that all the nations of the world can come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not just middle class white people, but all people come to faith in Christ. Amen. I, I, I got this, um, these statistics the other day. I was sitting in a meeting and for the most of the meeting was really boring, but I got this and it made me think really carefully. Listen to this. Listen to these people groups. Palestinians. 200 or 2,200 Palestinians in the Triangle area. Moroccans, 1,200 in the Triangle area. Gujarati, 6,200. Hindi, 11,000 Hindi people in the Triangle area. Punjabi, 3,500. Somalians, 775. Tamil, 3,500. Tulugus, 4,200. Thais, 1,350. We take the gospel to the nations, but I want you to understand that the nations have come to North Carolina as well. And I, I, I do want... Can I just... Give me just a minute. I want you to understand... Brothers and sisters, I'm not standing here trying to tell you how to think politically. I'm not going to try and speak into all of these issues of refugees and this sort of thing. I want to let you work that out with the Lord. But I do want you to understand that Christianity is not a matter of our private life and then we live a public life. Christianity is not a matter of values, but science and, and hard science is fact and this is religion. It is not as if we live in the real world and then we have some religious world that is upstairs and non-knowable and you can have it if you want it as a crutch. What I want you to understand is our Christianity and our understanding of the gospel should come to bear on everything that we do. Beyond our rights... Beyond even our safety. God has not called us to safety. God has called us to the gospel. That might have been a good place to say amen, but it's okay. I want you to use the gospel and I want you to look for the nations and understand that there will come a day when you'll be worshiping alongside of all these different people groups in heaven and we'll all be one with the Lord. Please don't let your Christianity be something that you do here. Our Christianity has a heavy worldview. What I want you to understand is there is no other intellectual group that has a mastery over the Christian world. We have enough 
to take what we have into the arts and into the world and into the sciences and into the public arena and defend truth and have a Christian worldview for the way that we do things. This past week, uh, I don't know why I was going to say this, this past week I was talking to one of our, uh, one of our senior, seniors or juniors, somebody here, and um, they were talking about an essay assignment that they had at school. And the essay topic that they had to write on was the uh, what is the greatest world problem that we have. And uh, to their credit, they got assigned a topic like uh, overpopulation is the world's biggest problem. I just want to ask you a question. If you were a junior in high school and you were going to write on the world's biggest problem being overpopulation, would you do that with or without Christ in the Scripture? Is your first thought, how does the Scripture come to bear on that issue? What do you believe about nuclear warfare? What do you believe about the refugee crisis? What do you believe about who you're going to vote for this coming year? Is it what your friends say? Is it what you read in the newspaper? Or do you have a grid for the Scripture and Christ and the Gospel by which you are able to go into the realm of ideas and make wise and good and biblical decisions and defend them? I want to encourage you to use your belief in the Scripture and in the Lord and in the Gospel in every facet of your life, not just on Sunday morning. Amen? Well, I better move quickly. Let me show you verse 13 to 17. God seals us. God saves us. I would say here that life in the future involves God's presence, provision, and purpose. Um, Thank you, Ken, for reading these verses. Let me just pick up for you, if you would, um, verse number 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will not hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down upon them. If you want to take notes, you can find this same Scripture fulfilled in the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, verse 10 through 12. Is the, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 49. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible is some sort of disparate amount of texts that have been tampered with. From Genesis to Revelation, it is one cohesive whole, whole without error, without any kind of of tampering. And you can you can have you not only can you have faith in that, you can have good reason in that. It's good arguments to be made for that. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 49. Look down at verse number 17. I'll just end with this. Life in the future involves God's presence, provision, and purpose. Isn't this a beautiful verse? For the Lamb of God is at the center of the throne. And He's their shepherd and He guides them into the springs of water of life and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. I just want you to understand a couple of things and I'll call it quits for today. Life in the future involves God's presence. Do you see that? The people are before the throne of God. He spreads His tabernacle as it would over them that they are right there in the very presence of God. Not only are they in the presence of God, but one day in the future, all believers will experience the provision of God. The heat will no longer be upon them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. We will be in the presence and the provision for God for all times. And if you were one of the original hearers of this book and you were being martyred and beat to 
death and driven out in social injustice and economic injustice because of your faith in Christ, you would want to hear the good news that because God reigns and Christ is good, if you believe in Him, there is coming a hopeful future where we will be in the presence of God and the provision of God and the great purpose of God. Notice what it says, and this hits every 21st century believer that I know, that we will be serving Him day and night in His temple. You know, there's so many believers that think that if you just hold out and hold on, when Jesus comes again, you'll be some kind of, you'll sprout angel wings and be on a, you know, naked baby on a cloud somewhere plunking on a harp, that you think that's what heaven is. I have news for you. The future is not out there. The future is here. The Bible says that we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ in utter righteousness and we will serve Him. Now here's my question for you on this last point. In the future, our hope is in the presence and the provision and in the purpose that God has designed for our lives with Him. Are you living now like you'll be living then? Are you living every day seeking to be in the very presence of God? Or do you have sin that's keeping you from that? The secret ones on the computer that you don't tell anybody about. The relationships that you hold on to more than you do Christ. The attitudes and the gospel and everything that's there. Or are you seeking to live in the presence of God? Are you living in the provision of God now? Or do you believe that if you had a few more dollars in the bank it'd be okay? And what about the purpose? Are you serving God now? Like you will then? Are you living for something bigger than yourself? I want to encourage you to think through some of the goals that we've set this year, not only for our church, but for our lives. And get on task with God. Yeah, you've got to work a job. Go to your job and live your Christian life out there. Do the very best that you can. Be excellent. Be working for Christ there. At the same time, be looking for ways to share the gospel and invite people to church and disciple people here and be in a small group. Learn to serve now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment? Our heads bowed and eyes are closed. I, I hope nobody's looking around Hey, this is, this is the way I want to give it to us today. In a minute, we'll just stand and sing, have a quiet moment. I want to encourage you today that if you're a believer in this room, you have been sealed and you have been saved and you have a wonderful future in God's holy kingdom. But are you living like that now? Or are you living a defeated life? And if you're in here today and you, you don't know Jesus as your Savior... I want to tell you he's much more than that. He's your Savior. He'll be your Lord. What are you struggling with? I want to encourage you to be honest with where you are with Christ. If you have legitimate and honest questions, seek somebody out that will give you legitimate and honest answers. But if you feel that the Spirit of God or you feel something inside is pulling you toward belief in Christ, but you're fearful of what people will think and you don't want to admit that you've been wrong, the problem is not so much the evidence, the problem is your heart. I want to encourage you today.
Go to Jesus. Trust Him. Inquire, but do so honestly. And for every believer in here today, take this moment. Confess sin and receive the goodness of Jesus. That you are a child of the King and you are sealed, you're saved, and you have a hopeful future. And I hope you'll live like that tomorrow. Just stand with us and sing this song.